welcome back to Female Founder World. I'm the host of the show. I am the creator of all things Female Founder World. My name's Jasmine Garnsworthy. And today I have Kaylin Marcotte on the show. She's the founder of Jiggy Puzzles. They're a brand that make, instead of, you know, puzzles that feel like a toy, they are puzzles positioned in the wellness, mental health home decor space. She has built the business on these really beautiful artist collaborations. People like frame the puzzles after they're done. And she started the business with $25,000 of her own savings. Uh, She had the idea in 2015, but took a while. She was working at the Skim. She was one of their first employees, which is crazy, and didn't actually launch the business until 2019. And with that $25,000, she was able to create her first run of a couple of thousand units of product. And she has some really clever ways about how to get around the minimum order quantities at some of those really bigger factories. So if you're just getting started, I feel like that's a really, really, really great tip. And now that she's a few years in, she just sold her 250,000 units of her puzzles. And that's between D2C, between her retail partnerships, people like Anthropology, And she's in this kind of stage of her business where she's ready to like land into those big box retailers. So we talk about the strategy of how she's going about lining that up. And she's really grown through collaborations and partnerships. So we get into the real nitty gritty about what does a revenue share split look like when you're working with an artist on a product like this? And how do you make the most of leveraging their audience? It's a really good, tangible conversation. As always, I ask all the follow-up questions to get the nitty gritty details about what is working to get traction in Kaylin's business. And I hope you love it. If you do, I'm going to ask you, as always, drop us that five-star review or take a screenshot and share to Instagram stories. I'm at Jasmine Garnsworthy and you can find the Female Founder World community at Female Founder World. Okay, let's get into the show. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Garnsworthy. Kaylin, welcome to Female Founder World. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, let's introduce people to Jiggy Puzzles. What is it that you're creating over there? Yes. So Jiggy Puzzles, uh, we are three years old and really the concept was to modernize and elevate the classic jigsaw puzzle and to support emerging creatives from around the world at the same time. So each Jiggy, we've, we've reimagined, elevated the packaging. The pieces come in a reusable glass jar in a beautiful box and we include puzzle glue with each one so that you can frame it once you're done. And the design Design for the puzzle itself is each by an emerging female artist who gets a percentage of every sale. So we do profit sharing for them. And this really came from my really organic just story of puzzles being my form of meditation and stress relief. And it was the classic like Tobby turned, turned side hustle, turned full time. And so we, yeah, we are here to reconnect people with kind of downtime and mindfulness, getting away from screens, kind of back to the analog basics and support artists at the same time. Love that. And what were you doing before you started Jiggy Puzzles and how did this like idea come about? Yeah, I so I started in my career in management consulting, and I was doing um, kind of classic like big tech uh, consulting projects. And then I met these two young co-founders in New York who were starting a media company. And I had been a poli sci major, and I was just really interested in the news and current events. And so um, once I heard what they were doing in their mission, I just 
was totally aligned and felt like I needed to be a part of it. So that company was the skim, the daily email newsletter. So I ended up joining the two co-founders as their first employee at the skim. And oh, wow. I did not there. know that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was an awesome experience. That was end of 2013 that I met them. So super early on. And it was just the really kind of meaty, creative, like hyper growth days. I joined them at right at like at their seed round, um, with like a hundred thousand subscribers or so. And then by the time I left, you know, we were post series B, like I want to say 7 million, five, 7 million subscribers, like 50 employees. So it was just those really like interesting early years and they were amazing, but they were also very Wait, stressful. I need, to, I need to know, like as someone who's building a media business, how, how did this game get from a hundred thousand? How? <laughs> I know it it was, it was a wild ride. So, I mean, the biggest things, obviously it was a, it was a daily email newsletter is still exists. And the concept is to connect, you know, especially millennial women with current events and the world around them. And so the concept was quick read, you know, five minutes in the morning to be prepped for your day and have all the news you need. So we really kind of leaned into that, into the morning routines and started doing a lot of social content. So again, this was like 2013, 14, 15. So the whole, like much easier to, to kind of go viral or get discovered and have that reach on Instagram and Facebook. And so we started with just organic social content and then a ton of word of mouth, which is really where my experience came from with the skim and now leading it into Jiggy is having very kind of grassroots community-based marketing. So we launched the Skim Ambassador program, which was our, you know, hyper user brand ambassador program of spreading the word about the skim, referring your friends, you become a part of this community. We have sip and skim events across the country and really incentivizing that, just sharing and referral word of mouth behavior. Um, I mean, a lot of press, definitely. It was also kind of this early like tech New York scene growing in those days, these two young female founders. So it was definitely like kind of a, a press darling. And so media exposure helped for sure. And then some performance. So I would say organic social content, really community driven grassroots marketing, press, and then some kind of performance and paid was like the, uh, the suite that really helped hyper growth in the early days. Okay. Good to know. Back to your story. I had yeah. to, I had to stop. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it was, it was, it was just a 24 seven kind of thing. And I was so excited to be doing this. I cared so much about the mission and was really fulfilled by it. But, you know, at the end of these long work days, I'd be looking for a way to just disconnect a little bit. And instead of just turning on the TV and, you know, more screen time, I started doing jigsaw puzzles and they really became my form of meditation and stress relief. I'm not great at sitting still and and kind of traditional meditation never really stuck with me. Um, So there's something about, you know, still having a project, something that, that focuses your mind and, and captures your attention that you're working towards, but that is still very relaxing and, and for me, very quieting. So I put on good music or, or a podcast or audiobook and 
glass of glass of wine or tea and do a puzzle. And that became my ritual. And so it was like a year into, you know, doing puzzles every week, pretty much that, that really the, the seeds started to plant of what would I do with this? And it was the same time, like, you know, adult coloring books were having a moment and like mm-hmm. DIY and Pinterest. It was like, maybe there's actually an appetite for something like this or, you know, a really um, kind of old school nostalgia, but in a much more elevated and, and aesthetic and beautiful way. So the idea for Jiggy planted then, but I ended up staying at the skin for four years. So this was a slow burn kind of story where I didn't end up launching for like another, that was 2015 to 2019. So, mm. you know, I had years of really developing the idea, taking my time, finding vendors. Obviously the skim was a startup, but all digital. So uh, while some lessons were transferable, learning the physical product world was brand new to me. So, um, so yeah, started kind of taking that on bit by bit. Wow. Okay. And so I read that you started the business with $25,000 of your own savings. What did that go towards and how long did it last you? Yeah. So that was what I launched with. So in order to launch, you know, there's kind of the just foundational basics of, you know, incorporating and getting the domain and setting up the site and, um, a lawyer to trademark the, the name and logo and all of that. So there was just kind of the, the housekeeping that, you know, I'm going to say it was a few thousand, but then really most of it was the product itself, of course, and inventory. And because our, the whole concept was we wanted to elevate the packaging and not do that just cardboard box that every puzzle Mm -hmm. ever made has come in. You know, a lot of it was very customized and the idea of there's no other puzzle company that you know, includes puzzle glue and has productized it in that way. So the the development of the packaging and each of the components, you know, the pieces come in a glass jar. So sourcing that and the puzzle glue, and I didn't want to use plastic. So, okay, let's Hold use on, what's aluminum. Glue? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially, you know, a water-based craft glue, but it it's customized in that it has to be very thin to spread because it just works by getting in between the pieces once you're done. So once you finish the whole puzzle, you spread it across very thinly, it gets in between the cracks and then it dries clear. And so it just binds the pieces together. So, you know, it has to dry, dry completely clear and not be like putty enough to not be able to spread across the puzzle. So you're using that so that folks can use it, use the completed puzzle, like keep them on display. Exactly. Since the whole concept is that each of the the puzzles is essentially, you know, a vehicle for Mm -hmm. these artists work. So since this is a piece of art and once you're done with it, you know, that was Mm. one of my things when I was doing them, what do I do with it? Once I'm done with it, I put hours upon hours into it. And then once it's done, it's, you know, like a 24 by 18 inch print essentially. So we wanted to make it very easy to keep and actually frame. So yes, each one includes the puzzle glue and then this straight edge tool to spread the glue. And so most of the initial, you know, just capital savings went into that product development and then the actual first production run to launch. And then how did you get your first customers? Where did they come from? 
the very first ones were my friends, of course, um, you know, and that was another thing. And for, you know, for anyone listening, who's thinking about starting, I kind of really got comfortable with, I'm not a huge risk taker. So I was like, let me really think this through and kind of try to de-risk it for myself or get comfortable with what this could look like. Let's say I'm wrong. There's not an appetite for this, but like between friends and family and, you know, the couple local gift boutiques that I think I could convince to buy some, like how many could I sell through? And, and like, am I confident putting my savings into this first production run, you know, of X amount and that at least that I could um, break even on. And so the first, you know, is November 6th of 2019. And I put the Shopify site live and then sent a, an email out to all my friends and family. And so, you know, the first, the first handful were all friends and family, but then I do remember, you know, the first stranger, cause I'm watching each one come <laughs> in the first stranger and, um, and it ended up being, you know, a friend of a friend. So for a while it was just kind of ripple effect. I asked everyone to share and help amplify, but then timing wise, you know, it was November 6th that I launched. So we went right into holiday season. So I immediately started pitching gift guides and product lists and as many just, you know, those, the, the commerce editors at any publication I could find. And so that certainly gave it, you know, a little momentum out of the gate. What was your first run of units? Like how much you're talking about de-risking, what does that look like? Are you buying, you know, as few as possible? What were your MOQs to begin with? Yeah, MOQs was a um, quite a surprise to me. I was maybe naive, but I was like, I don't know. I, yeah. I have this thing I want to make. Don't you guys just make things? And you know, mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple relationship. I did not realize the what went into partnering with a factory. It's really a partnership. It's not that transactional, and you have to convince them to even turn on the machines for you. And yeah, especially pre-launch, pre-revenue, like it's essentially a risk to them, and you have to, you know, convince them to take a bet on you that this will be worth their time and that you'll grow with them. So the lowest I could get down to, and I got around it in a couple ways. And also for anyone, you know, just, I think thinking creatively, I got around it in a couple ways. One was, so they wanted 10,000 unit minimum. And so I was like, all right, I think I could sell like 2000. That was the number I got Mm -hmm. comfortable with that. Like even just friends, family, a couple gift boutiques, I can sell 2000 units. So essentially I asked, okay, because, you know, the raw materials themselves isn't where the cost, it's the printing and compiling and, and importing freight, all of that. Um, so I was like, what if I just pay for the raw materials, but you don't actually make it yet. And then I just basically have a credit for like the full 10,000, but I only take delivery on two right now. So, you know, can, can try to, to negotiate yep. in that way. One place um, still said no. They wanted to run the full 10,000. And even that, they were like, that's really, really low for us. I was like, all right, what if... uh," And they basically said, it's not worth firing up the machines. Like, it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what if we wait until the next big order you have for somebody else and you just like tack mine on to the end? And so you don't have to staff the whole factory for a day. Just like tack it on. They were like, we could do that. You just have no control. We don't know when the next big order. So like you're just sacrificing 
control mm-hmm. on your in-hand date. I was like, okay, I'll have some flexibility um, for that. So I think, you know, really just trying to get creative. So ultimately, yeah, 2000 units was what I took on the first delivery and then 10. And I mean, little did I know, if, you know, for, for the timing of anyone catching on November 6, 2019, basically like three months in business before the pandemic. So in the end, I, I ended up being sold out and wished I'd gotten everything much more quickly. But yeah, it was, you know, one of those things, hindsight's 2020. And obviously no one could have known what was coming, but ended up getting the full delivery for that spring. And then ever since, ever since the, the pandemic, it's just been off to the races. I was looking at your business and just thinking, wow, like lockdowns and COVID and just people being at home trying to find things to do with their time that weren't like staring at a screen must have been an amazing like kickstart for your company. It was, it definitely brought, you know, it brought a lot of just organic interest demand. I think even like, you know, I kept thinking like publications that were willing to write about it and like influencers or celebrities that were willing, like people that would not have been like writing or thinking about puzzles, you know, there was like Uh, openness to, to share that. So we did, yeah, a lot. I was just DMing every like celebrity or influencer I liked and followed every publication, just reaching out to and trying to, you know, seize that window. But at the same time, it also brought a lot of supply chain constraints and increasing mm-hmm. costs and logistics and freight. I mean, we've heard the stories now of things just sitting at port and not getting off the boat and, you know, carriers jacking up the fuel surcharges and all of that. So it was just a constantly moving target and came with, you know, a, a great boost in demand, but also a lot more logistical headaches. Yeah, no, I can totally understand that. So you're you've now sold your two hundred and fiftieth puzzle, which is amazing. Big congrats! Yes, and thank you. One of the strategies that you've been using to do that is really this like artist and creator partnerships and collaborations. And I think a lot of people are interested in this idea of okay, how do I work with creators and and different partners? to create actual product collaborations, not just like, you know, giveaways and newsletter partnerships, but actually like co-create a product together. How do you, like walk me through the process of doing that. How do you find the right person and know that they're the right person? How do you like structure those partnerships? How long does it take? Like Mm -hmm. talk me through what that's all about. Yeah. So we think of partnerships now in a couple main buckets, of course, our artists. So that was like the day one model that we, I just started going to art fairs and shows and, you know, looking at Instagram or looking at sites where they were selling prints of their work. So just curating these artist relationships and, um, for that, especially in the beginning, because I was self-funded, you know, reached out and was essentially like, listen, I, like I'm a small business. I, I want this to be um, a win-win. I don't have a lot of cash up front to pay like a commission, you know, for you to commission mm-hmm. an original for me. 
So why don't I pull from your existing portfolio of work so that, you know, we don't need, I, you don't, I don't want you to, to incur time and, and energy and do all this work without being compensated for it. So let's pull from your existing portfolio. Of course, I was always looking at the art in the lens of like, what would be fun to puzzle? Is there enough detail and color and, and layers? And, and so would this look beautiful when it was done, but also be a fun puzzle experience. So we'd review and pull from their portfolio. And then it was essentially a rev share, you know, royalties on the back end of sales. Um, so wanted to, to de-risk it a bit on the cash side up front for myself, but have it be a win-win on the back. So for artists and creatives, that's one way. I do think if you're asking them to create something new, if you want an original and you're commissioning, there does need to be an upfront cash component. But if you can't, or you know, just being much more generous in that case, lower cash but higher royalties. So that's one model. You know, some either bigger artists or now that we started working with brand partners as well, there, you know, some will ask for like a minimum guarantee. So that essentially, you know, whatever their, maybe whatever their commission rate would have been instead of doing up front, you know, they'll do it on the back end, but have to commit to at least having this minimum guarantee in sales. And so essentially, you know, it's pulled out of the proceeds um, until they, they are made whole and then like the rev split will kick in. So that's one kind of the artists and partners. And now that we are also working with a lot of brands, you know, nonprofits, for example, we've, we've really thought about our partnership strategy as a growth vehicle to get in front of these new audiences and, and not just drive sales, but the visibility and just kind of top line brand awareness. So we work with brands creating a custom for them to, to do a gift with purchase to their audience or just surprise and delight, bundle it together with other product to increase their average order value. Um, so now that we've started working with that, it's either a combo of, you know, if they, if they have in-house assets, they have beautiful t- photography of their product, then the creative is kind of taken care of and then it'll be a rev share on the back end. So I think those are the two, you know, some kind of commission rate up front, a rev split and um, kind of if you need to to get creative around rev split with a min- minimum guarantee, kind of doing what make is comfortable, you know, gives enough upside for everyone, but isn't totally limiting, especially as like a cash flow driven, you know, bootstrapped business. When you're, uh, or when businesses in general are looking at working with an artist and they want to use like an existing piece of artwork, like what is a ballpark number about what the rev share should look like for something like that? I mean, you're obviously incurring all of the hard costs for production. So how do you make sure that that's fair and what do people expect? I think it really depends on the cost of goods and what the retail price is, of course. So what margin you're left with, you know, if it's like a t-shirt and you're selling it at a high price versus a, you know, a print that, uh, that is just paper and commands a less price. So really figuring out the numbers on what the costs are, what the retail price is, therefore what your margins are, but anything like lowest like five to 10. And then depending, we have two different production models. So 
for one of them, for example, um, which is like de-risked for us because we essentially print on demand, we can be much more generous. So this is our Jiggy Studios, what we call it, and essentially more of a marketplace where artists come on, upload their work, and then and then we power it. So we make the puzzle and sell it, but we only make what has sold. So for that, you know, we do 25%, which is, you know, I think Etsy's like five, um, mm-hmm. something like Society Six is like like three. So honestly, sub sub five is like big, big players, but um I wouldn't feel totally comfortable with. And so we're in the five to 25 range, depending on um, on the model for production. Cool. I want to talk about, um, you know, like I feel like looking back at your story, it'll kind of make sense. You kind of, you can join the dots and it all just looks like this amazing linear growth <laughs> that's adding <laughs> into place. But I know that uh, starting a business is very rarely like that. Talk me through what happened with your glass jars when you were first ordering your product and what that mistake looked like, how you overcame oh it and what kind of, what lessons you have <laughs> for other yes. things. Yes. So I, you know, I, I had had the idea pre-launch really just starting to develop it. I had the idea of what I wanted it to look like and be like, but I didn't know how to translate that into like a CAD file that a factory could actually make and print. So I was like, all right, at the very least, I think I still need someone to help hone and, and finalize this concept, but then certainly to translate that concept into like factory files. And so I went on LinkedIn and found um, just a, a, a grad from the School of Visual Arts in New York. And she it said she didn't product, product design. So we started just iterating and, and would meet up and use like cardboard and cut it out and try it. And so we finally got the box down and they figured the box design concept and then dimensions would determine a lot. And so we placed the order for all of the the paper goods, the boxes and the puzzles, but they, they did the boxes first. They hadn't printed the puzzles yet. And separately we placed all the glass jar orders. So we wanted, you know, the pieces to come in a glass jar to look very aesthetic, elevated. If you don't glue it and put it back, you can put it on your shelf. And so we ordered these glass jars with a cork lid and, you know, had, had the samples that we had made ourselves and, and on all the mock-ups with the dimensions, everything should fit. And then the factory, I was on like my last kind of pre-launch vacation, summer, July, 2019 in Costa Rica with my family. And I get a call and the factory said the, the puzzles don't fit in Ooh. the jars. <laughs> so, you know, by now the entire, the box is fit around the jar, which is fit with everything Mm. else. So I'm like, the only thing that is still subject to change, that we even can change at this point, is the puzzle itself. Um, We can't redo the jars. So it was actually one of those, and, you know, I think for anyone out there, take this as a lesson of, like, necessity is the mother of invention, and how can you just take it and spin Mm -hmm. it and make it a thing? But... Basically, before we had done, you know, some people ask sometimes like, why we have four we have four hundred fifty piece and eight hundred piece puzzles. Like, why is that? You know, the standard in kind of the industry is five hundred and a thousand. 
And so, you know, we say, and we spin it as it's, well, the whole concept is that you frame your jiggy. And so we want it to match standard frame sizes. So we had to, to bring them down a bit so that you wouldn't have to custom frame and incur the expense and hassle of custom framing. So we matched our puzzle sizes to standard frame sizes to help you frame it as art when you're done, which actually was a great idea. And, and <laughs> I'm glad it worked out that way. Um, but it came about because they wouldn't fit. So we had to <laughs> shrink the puzzle to fit in the jar. And that's how we landed at 450 and 800. And then I was like, wow, we're at it. Let's make it, you know, 14 by 18, 18 by 24, super simple. Cause I think we're like 23.7 inches. And now it's like super whole numbers that you can find at, you know, target for a frame. Okay. That is just worked out. That's worked out so well for you because it just makes so much sense. Like, of course they should fit in standard frames if that's the whole concept behind it, that is artwork. Yes. Total spin at first, but ended up being true. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Okay. I love that. That must've been really stressful in the moment though. I can just imagine you with like no Wi-Fi trying in Costa Rica, yeah. like trying to figure out like what, like, what to do with don't that. fit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh God, I'm having like heart palpitations thinking about it. Okay. So we, <laughs> I, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, getting the, getting the actual physical product about the collaboration strategy. The kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on is retail and wholesale and how you've been growing that side of the business mm-hmm. just really quickly about, you know, are you, um, are you focused on like independent boutiques? Do you use platforms like Bulletin or Fair or Away, or are you now more focused on how do I get those really big retail accounts? Like what does your strategy look like at this point in the business? Yeah, it's, it's evolving. And really in the beginning, I, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily that thoughtful about it because I was really excited about building D to C and I wanted that relationship. I wanted to know our customer and to have that line of communication on email and social and, and see their buying behavior and also just you know, strategically get the data, understand, shape the early days around what behavior we were seeing. So I really focused on that. It kind of came our first retail relationship, which ended up being a huge one. It was anthropology came about very naturally. They found us on Instagram and reached out and I, you know, packed, rented a car in New York and drove down to Philly where they're headquartered and pitched. And it was a winter, you know, going into the release was going to be for holiday 2020. So they put this whole campaign around kind of the COVID Christmas and how puzzles were the perfect, uh, you know, gift of the season. And so that ended up being um, a much broader one than I would have anticipated. But even the decision to go with them and then since then, you know, how we've chosen who to partner with, it was it's, you know, it's definitely just volume, you know, margins are lower, of course, but volume, it can be meaningful revenue, but also, especially in the early days, I was really focused on just the, the brand and kind of product positioning. So something like an anthropology, you know, our next accounts were Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom and very kind of upscale curated gift boutique. And so I really wanted to get puzzles away, or at least, you know, our puzzles get jiggy away from like toy and games 
and into these much more lifestyle, gifting, home decor. Um, And so it was much more kind of a brand and product positioning strategy of where we want to be associated and seen and, and that Jiggy is not, you know, of course it's a fun activity, but we're not positioning it as, you know, toy and game. Um, it's art and it's, um, mental health and wellness and relaxation and Mm. a fun, you know, date night. And so that was, was kind of the strategy now that we're growing and, you know, really can, can scale. We are on platform. So fair and bulletin are the two that we're on. And I would say, you know, if you just, if you set it and forget it, you can get a good, just, you know, steady drum beat, nothing huge, nothing crazy. But, um, we also kind of see it as like free marketing. You know, it's, I love getting tagged in these boutiques, um, you know, posts and all of their promotion. So visibility and marketing, and then what we're just starting to do. And, you know, I'm glad we kind of waited for this step is, is work with like a broker. So once you want to go mass, I also, I've heard such horror stories of chargebacks and, you know, if it's not the curtain labels aren't right and all of this. So for, you know, going real mass or big box, um, working with a broker for that and also someone who can kind of help advise on what does the price point need to be? Okay. Do we even want this under our main brand or is this like a, a sub brand and how do all these pieces play together? So, um, yeah, another episode TVD when we have a, you know maybe a year's worth under our belt of of more mainstream and what that relationship with a broker looks like. But um, that was one where I I thought it would just be best to get some help. How do you how do you find a broker? So a bunch reached out to me. I generally and I would say like half of my inbox is just like inbound cold. Mm-hmm. And so once you have any level of, of visibility or certainly any press, like you're going to get vendor inbounds like no other, but I usually just try to go through recommendations and at least, at least ask, even if it was kind of cold inbound, at least ask for referrals and try to back channel a little bit, see who they've worked with. But for the most part, try to, to try to just from the start, go through trusted recommendations. So, um, and like, see what's in the stores, you know, whenever I go to a target and see what like the end caps are and what, you know, what products do I think are beautifully merchandised and I'm so impressed they got in there. Okay. Who's working with them and who's repping them. Um, so kind of reverse engineer. I do the same, even with small gift boutiques, you know, I go in cause it can be, it's so fragmented to try to go one by one to gift boutiques. So our whole team, it's like our just exercise now forever in our, our hometowns or just, you know, any city on vacation and we see a gift boutique, we'll go in and be like, where do you source? Are you on fair? Do you go to gift shows? Are you going to like, you know, the, the New York nows or shop object or all these, these trade shows. And so trying to reverse engineer from where we want to be and how they source. Okay. That totally makes sense. And then the last thing that I ask everyone who comes on the show is just for a resource. So that could be a book, a podcast, habit that you have every day, something that's been helping you as you've been building Jiggy and just, I guess, like up-leveling yourself, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, what have you been doing that you think other people should get into? So I would, and I would have, you know, maybe if I recommended this before and it was 
not very accessible, it, it, you know, would have not been that value add, but there are actually much more accessible ways now. And so mine is coaching and, Mm. you know, someone described it to me as basically like therapy is like past to present and coaching is present to future. And Mm. there, I think coaching used to be like exec, you know, fortune 500 CEOs would have executive coaches And it's really, I think there was a whole movement around like bringing, you know, uh, therapy online and making it more accessible. And there are a couple of platforms doing it for coaching. One is called Sky, S-K-Y-E. And basically you take an in, you know, an intake form, um, have a call. It's right now they're, they're pretty small. So you actually have a call with the founder and she learns about your goals. And then she hand matches you with one of their executive coaches. And, you know, I, I forget the exact pricing, but it's not, it's not hugely unaffordable and it, it is an investment, but for me, especially being a solo founder, I just needed someone to like talk to, you know, to, to hold me accountable, to set goals with, to bounce ideas around. And so many of those conversations were like, am I crazy? Is this going to work? Okay. Here's what I want to achieve by end of week. Will you, you know, almost like hired myself a boss and like, will you make sure that I actually do what I say I'm going to do? Um, and so for me being first time solo founder, um, having someone in my corner, who's not a friend, you know, not, biased, like my friends and family and not an investor. Cause there's not that kind of pressure, you know, mm-hmm. still of the outcome. Um, so really just someone in my corner has been hugely valuable. Amazing. Okay. I'm going to put a link in the show notes because people are definitely going to want to check that out. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so cool Thank to hear you. about how you've been building Jiggy and everything you guys are doing. And honestly, like, thanks for being so transparent and upfront with all the details and numbers. We love that when people come onto the show. Absolutely. We have to stick together. This is a wild ride. So (laughs) happy to be a part of it. Hey, it's Jasmine again. Okay. So if you're anything like me, you listen to conversations like that and you just want to connect with the founder and ask them specific questions about your business and what you should be doing and dig a little deeper about the stuff that you're curious about that she that she spoke to and that's been working in her business. And if you are a Business Bestie subscriber, we're actually hosting a session for you where you can connect with Kaylin in a really small, intimate online video call and ask her these questions and benefit from everyone else's questions that they have as well and really get that group mentorship that I think is so important when you're building your business. It's just chatting and bouncing ideas and figuring out what's working for other founders and what advice they have for you in your business. I put a link in the show notes that explains how you can join that and what it's all about. So definitely make the most of that resource. I'm really excited and actually like super proud to be able to bring that to the community. We also have a download available for Business Besties and this is just a a really interesting, helpful resource that Kaylin's been using in her business that you can use as a template in yours. And that's available in the digital goods room in the female founder world community. Again, that is for our business bestie subscribers. Link is in the show notes about how to access that. All right. I'll see you at the next episode. Bye.